Yeah, I think lobbying would do a good option as well. We were down in um, in D.C. on the weekend. We went talked with uh, Senator Gillibrand's office. They expressed a lot of interest in trying to engage with the hacker community. They want to build a hacking school. They want to have more high-level computer hackers working for the federal government. They're asking us where they all are, and we're telling them they're all sitting in federal prisons. You arrested them. <laughs> You know, they're, they're, there's such a disconnect between the reality and what they want it to the reality to be as well. This week on Monero Talk is sponsored by Cake Wallet. Store, send, receive, and exchange your Monero and Bitcoin safely on iOS and Android too. Cake Wallet is open source and you always control your own keys. And by Stealth EX, an instant exchange where privacy is the top concern. Go to StealthEx.io to instantly exchange between Monero and 450 plus assets without having to create an account or register and with no limits. Making StealthEx a simple way to purchase Monero with crypto anonymously. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever. By typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or Cake Wallet send address field to send us a tip. This week on Monero Talk. Douglas Tuman interviews Tor Eklund and Michael Hassard, attorneys with decades of experience working on federal computer crime cases. They discuss the ongoing case of Roman Sterlinoff, an early Bitcoin investor accused of creating and operating the dark net Bitcoin mixing service, Bitcoin Fog, and laundering $336 million. They talk about regulatory outreach and crypto, why there is no evidence against Roman, how chain analysis is incentivized to ramp up crypto investigations and prosecutions, the implications of the case for every user of privacy-preserving technologies, whether or not Roman should have used XMR, is it possible to ban Monero, and much more. Monero Talk starts now. Tor, Michael, welcome to Monero Talk. Thanks for having, having us. <laughs> Thanks for joining me, guys. Um, so, big topic today. I got to admit, I didn't really know much about this until you guys reached out. Do you guys want to quickly maybe introduce yourselves and then, and then we'll get into the topic at hand? Yeah, hi, I'm, uh, I'm Tor Eklund, um, and I've been doing computer crime cases in federal court for about the last decade. And um, Mike, who can introduce himself as an associate at the firm, but basically we're here to talk today about a particular case we're working on that we consider to be a, a very important case in relation to blockchain forensics and also to the, anybody in the crypto community, given its uh, breadth. With that, I turn it over to Mike. Hey, my name is Mike Hazard. I'm an associate with the firm, federal trial attorney, and this is a big case, precedent-setting case in the blockchain space. And uh, thanks for having us on board to talk about this. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, you know, this is Monero Talk, obviously. So we're, we're constantly talking about chain analytics and the implications it has for cryptocurrency at large. And then in particular with Monero, given that Monero, uh, as far as we know, 
cannot be tracked or traced. But we, we can get into that. I'd like to get your opinions on that and those type of things at some point. But if you guys can, I guess first give us give us an overall uh, of the case. What's actually going on here? What it, what is the case at hand? Um, well, basically, in a nutshell, our client stands accused of running uh, a Bitcoin tumbler called Bitcoin Fog for ten years and laundering three hundred thirty six million dollars worth of drug money crypto. Um, except there's not a um, single piece of evidence that he ever operated uh, Bitcoin fog. And after a 10 year, very lengthy, very expensive investigation involving chain analysis um, and sort of actually, I think one of chain analysis's first cases, they um, arrest him at LAX when he's going to the United States to take some flight courses. And when they arrest him at LAX, they arrest him with three laptops, you know, four Raspberry Pis, uh, four terabytes of the hard drives, handwritten notes, diaries, backup codes, all his accounts. And um, not a shred of evidence that this guy's been operating Bitcoin Fog for 10 years. And um, he's been in jail for the last two years awaiting pretrial. And um, we still haven't seen a shred of evidence that he's guilty at all of anything. And what is going on here is they've confused uh, this guy who was an early adopter of crypto, like 2011, for this like Russian money laundering drug kingpin. But uh, with that, I hand it over to Mike if he's got anything more, more on that. Yeah, this case came through a friend of mine. I'm actually friends with his uh, cousin. And that's how we heard about the case. And at first we... You know, we thought we were going to go in there and cut a deal, but it quickly became apparent that he's completely innocent of everything for which he's accused. He's been caught up in this Kafkaesque nightmare, and it's just been, he's locked up in, in the Northern Neck Regional Jail in, in Virginia. Uh, they don't, they didn't give him bail. He's been, you know, they're throwing the book at him here, and they're throwing the book at him with some very shoddy and incomplete uh, blockchain analysis. There appears to be a lot of parallel construction where they had a target in mind and then they built the investigation to support that interpretation rather than conducting an investigation uh, to try to figure out who actually operated Bitcoin Fog. And that's where we step in. And so what what do they, quote unquote, have on him for, for lack of a <laughs> better thing? Like, what, what are they, you know, what, what if they do have any good evidence to point to, what is it that they're? That they're that they're claiming as, as that, that that's what astounds me about this case um they are claiming that in 2011 now mind you the statute of limitations and all these federal statutes are five years and we're talking about stuff like 20 years ago. in 2011 he allegedly um paid for the uh, dns registration for the clear net you know regular internet www.bitcoinfog.com website uh but no evidence or allegation that he ever set it up just that he paid for the dns registration and they don't ever talk about the renewal of the dns registration based on that and that he was a user of bitcoin fog because he used it to tumble his currency and put it in like his cracking account or whatever just like the government's own expert says that 90 percent of the usage of tumblers is for legitimate purposes um just based on that alleged dns registration that they're doing from an ip address attribution which we think is a misattribution, but it doesn't matter because it's illegal to register freaking DNS, right? They say he operated Bitcoin Fog 
as a uh, administrator for 10 years. And mind you, they don't have the Bitcoin Fox servers. They don't have any logs. There's no eyewitnesses that say this. There's nothing in any of his computers that they seized that say this. They put him under surveillance when he was in the United States in Miami for like a couple of weeks. They had him under physical surveillance. They had him under wiretap and they had what's called a pen trap. And for people who don't know what a pen trap is, is they're, they're trapping all your signal traffic and nothing, right? Um, but you... <laughs> The one of the weird twists in this case, and you know, I'm rambling a little bit, but this I, I think goes to the confirmation bias that's happening in this case, because it's people just sitting at desks 6,000 miles away from Sweden, where a client lives. It has nothing to do with the United States. He's never been in D.C., which is another whole other crazy thing about this case. They're kind of claiming universal jurisdiction. We can go and um, launch a prosecution from anywhere. We've got our laptop. Um, I'll stop for a second right there, Mike. Do you have anything you want to add on that? Because I will, I won't shut up about this case. It pisses me off. <laughs> it pisses me off. Up, oh, Mike, you're breaking up a little bit. You guys there? Yeah, I'm there. I, that's just me, like <laughs> for a moment and keeping myself from running. Lawyers love to talk, right? Like, um, it's a fascinating case, and I think it's yeah. in the first one ever to challenge these kinds of blockchain forensics, which are not as scientific as they're being claimed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get into that. So I just want to understand, but so uh, he, he's a cute, basically they think, they think they got on him that he's the one that, that uh, registered the domain, I guess it's Bitcoin, back. Bitcoin, Bitcoin fund dot, dot info. Is that it? Cause I think I'm looking uh, at it. Dot, it was the original was in, in 2009 was uh, Bitcoin fog.com. Okay. And then, now there's an info one. This it's still operating. That's yeah, that's not crazy. Why is that still? They, up? Have, they said after they arrested him that the shot the site shut down like two days or whatever, a couple days after he was arrested. But yeah, you can find it out there. Um, there's a lot of stuff like that in this investigation. That um, so yeah, like he's currently running the the ClearNet site for that. Like then that's right. That's just strange. Um, <laughs> But but I guess but what was a little weird. But he said he didn't remember whether or not he he registered the domain. So what's kind of his uh, his argument there? It's just uh, you know I register domains all the time type of thing, or that he. Well, was- yeah. Well, first of all, he did do that as part of his job, like because he was working for uh, a, a Swedish internet marketing company, and he's also, I mean, I know ton, not tons of people, but I know a lot of people register domains that and they don't administer the website, right? Like it'd be one thing if they had him um, registering this domain, right? And then some kind of evidence, like anything, a communication with the staff, logs, an eyewitness who overheard him in a bar, um, like every other crypto prosecution, they have corroborating evidence because this this forensic software, even at its best, is just a tracing software. It's not an identification software, but I feel like people are so like, afraid of showing that they don't understand what's going on in the tracing and they're so afraid of looking stupid that they give credence to something that actually isn't that accurate is, a, is a, a, like a very probabilistic uh guessing heuristic mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and when when we say the tracing in terms of the website it's that they they traced the coins and saw that coins were used to register this to, to bot purchase the registration of this domain yeah, and in this really convoluted, um, 
like crazy layered transaction that we have uh, on our end having problems like unpeeling and making sense with and that there's uh, errors in some of the pleadings as to wallet addresses, which, you know, you get like a typo in this kind of case and the wallet address and everything's like uh, all over the place. Uh, yeah, essentially like a three layer transaction where they say our client was um, trying to hide the payment for it. But okay, well, even if he was, even just assuming arguendo that he did all that, mm -hmm. first of all, it's completely legal. Right. <laughs> it's in Sweden. Has nothing to do with the United States, right? He bought a domain, right? You need more. It's you need more to get to money laundering, and you need to and and you need to be more to get to operating the site. And like Mike said at the beginning of this, at first we thought, oh yeah, we're gonna cut a deal. I, I didn't think this case was like what it has become, um, and so I wasn't paying attention. And I finally go down and talk to him in jail, and you, I talked. We talked to the guy for like three minutes. You're like, oh my god, you're innocent. And he's like, yeah. And then you're like, shit, this is a different game because you can't, you can't cut a plea then, right? Because I mean, I know people lie to take pleas because this machine that they're up against is, is you know, forty-two billion dollar budget. You need like a couple mil just to, to even, you know, get in the ballpark uh, with these guys. But um, that's, you know, everyone who comes on this case, we say to them, you know, if you see anything that makes you think he's guilty, like tell us right away and nobody to date has come and said that they've all said this is insane right and the thing is even if, even if he did register this domain and use bitcoin to do it, it it's just the it's the clear net domain that talks about this service which could have been anybody that was using the service and maybe they just wanted to tell the world about the service it doesn't mean that they were running the service right like right. I, even if, yeah i could have been right. just a bitcoin user i use bitcoin fog uh, because I wanted to uh, add privacy to my transactions. And at the time, there really was no way to do that. Uh, and then I went and wrote about it, bought a domain, Bitcoin.fog, on the clear net, just to put the word out to people on, you know, if you're into Bitcoin and you want privacy, uh, you know, you can use this website and explain, you could use this this tour uh, website. And here's, you know, here's here's how here's it works. Here's a link. And here's a link. That, right. But like, yeah, right. And completely legal and protected by First Amendment and all, all sorts of things. Right. Uh, and, but <laughs> he didn't do that, right? But like you say, even if he did, that's what's crazy about this case. Even if he did, just assuming all this stuff they're saying, arguendo, okay, it, it's like they haven't identified a single specific crime now, mind you, he's being charged with money laundering, which requires that you're trying to hide, you know, illicit proceeds. So you have to relate the money to some kind of crime. And we're asking over and over again, every step here, can you please identify a single leap in crime? And um, to date, they haven't identified that. What they say is, oh, Bitcoin fog, Bitcoin fog, Bitcoin fog. But running a Tumblr per se is not illegal because you don't have the you need to have like the illicit funds, the criminal intent to do this. And they're just, they're espousing this theory of criminal liability that everybody in the crypto space should be concerned with because it's super expansive and it's it's just almost universal. They're claiming almost universal jurisdiction so that they could sit at their um, desk anywhere in the United States or in DC and press a button and haul you into that court in DC. Uh, and you may not think that's a big deal, but venue is a big deal. It's costing us thousands of dollars uh, out of money we don't have because they seized all this money just to travel to see him in jail. Like, you know, it's a six hour drive one way from New York. The jail's two hours outside of uh, D.C. And, you know, they do things to like 
I mean, this guy's supposed to be innocent, right? Presumed innocent, but he hasn't had his trial. He's in, in, in jail. Um, if he goes to a hearing, he does. He's not going to get any sleep the night before the hearing. But anyhow, give give us some some insight, you know, into the legalities of it with regards to uh, running a tumbler, right? So, is it you know, it's it's not necessarily illegal to to set up a system like this in in the first place. But then I guess the idea is if they could show that a lot of illegal funds are going through it, then it becomes something that they can say is illegal because they're providing this service. Is that how the- Right, so it's- That's correct. Yeah, yeah, it's traditional money laundering. And it's, I mean, the money laundering statute hasn't changed. And you you have to, you know, know that you're um, trying to, you're intentionally hiding criminal proceeds. Right. Right. And that requires that you know that what you've got are criminal proceeds. The problem they have here with our client is that these aren't criminal proceeds. These are the proceeds of his fucking paycheck, right? A money that he earned, that he got into crypto early in 2011. You know, January 1st, 2011, you can buy one Bitcoin for 30 cents. That's the year he gets in, right? And then he hears, you know, he's hanging out the scene. He's a computer nerd, right? Like a lot of us, but the government doesn't seem to understand that culture, right? And, you know, somebody says to him, you should secure your stuff with, the, you know, tumble it. So everything he puts in his Kraken account, you can see in the discovery, he tumbles through Bitcoin Fog. So it goes from like whatever his paycheck, wherever his bank is, into the Tumblr, into Kraken, which is in his own name, you know, his own passports and everything. They follow and, KYC. He has his IDs on there and everything. He wasn't trying to hide anything. Mm-hmm. And they're like, they, there are, they can't trace anything or they haven't bothered, right, to trace the origins of the fund. They're all like, because it's coming from Bitcoin Fog it's criminal proceeds but that's not right 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 he, like, he could have just been a user of bitcoin fog which is obviously what what he's claiming he is uh and he wanted to add privacy to his to his bitcoin he wanted to essentially clear the history of his bitcoin uh and th- there is no right is it fair there's, there's no crime in in um trying to obfuscate the history of your bitcoin unless it's that you're obfuscating it because you committed some crime that you're trying to. Correct. Yeah, or, or hiding it for someone else that you the, know it's criminal. The act of, yeah. quote unquote, washing your, your, your Bitcoin, for lack of a better term, uh, is not per se illegal. It's if you're laundering for. And they know that. Right. The government's own expert, analysis came out with a report a couple of years ago where they determined that about 90% of all transactions going through all the mixers. There's more than just Bitcoin Fog. There was, there was Helix. There's a couple other ones. Uh, so 90% are for legitimate reasons. People who want to secure the privacy of their cryptocurrency. You know, it's the other 10% that are, are washing stolen funds from exchanges, washing drug money. That's the illegal part. That needs to be driven home. The government under the chain houses understands that but they still are bringing this prosecution. So so let's get to that. I mean, so the real crux of the issue, obviously you guys are, are trying to keep this uh, innocent innocent guy out of, out of jail, right? Um, well, I'm trying to get him out. He's like, they got him in pre-trial. Oh, okay, in pre-trial. Yeah. Uh, the trial is, when is the trial? It's soon, right? It's coming up. September 9th. September. Coming up September 9th. Uh, but perhaps what's most interesting, and not to, to belittle this, this guy, I mean, I, I mean, if if he's innocent, this is this is tragic, right? Um, what's really interesting is that potentially there's 
kind of something nefarious going on here with the ecosystem of chain analysis in and of itself in that it's kind of perpetuating this right there's this incentive for uh the you for the government to say we got the guy using chain analysis and there's the incentive for chain analysis to say please use our chain analytic services to to fight crime and it's kind of creating this feedback loop uh that's perpetuating the you know perhaps the tracking down of innocent people using chain analytics because it's it's quote unquote so easy to do right it looks it seems like it's very straightforward but you're claiming it it hasn't been tested yet uh we don't really even know how accurate it is and here we have um courts of law in the united states basically ready to rely on it and put somebody in jail for it yeah i think fundamentally it's 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 not a deductive heuristic it's not a uh like sort of piece of analytic software that comes up with like some sort of necessary indubitable proposition like whatever the um velocity of an object falling when it's you know being pulled by gravity or whatever it's you have to guess uh when you're making these cluster attributions and all these sorts of quirky um proprietary things uh involving algorithms and code that they're refusing to show us right like if your stuff's so great how come you won't let us look at it right if you're so solid on your results show us the damn math and all they're trying all they're doing they're accusing us of hiding stuff right all they're doing is hiding um everything but i i, I think it's no one's saying that blockchain forensics are useless right but they've gained this kind of authority the um from these prosecutions that are all basically pleas and where there's all the cases that we've looked at have some sort of uh corroborating evidence like uh there's one in DC called Harmon where the guy accidentally took a photo of the admin screen on his laptop with his google glasses and the government got that uh Ross Albrook Silk Road gets arrested in the Glendale Public Library with his laptop open admin panel to Silk Road open chatting with an undercover agent right and then they get his diaries and he's written in them all about this in this case they got our clients diaries you know what they say about operating bitcoin fog nothing and in all those other cases they got the servers in this case they don't have the servers they don't have any logs they're accusing them of conspiracy and there's not a single communication not a single communication with anyone about operating bitcoin fog this guy's facing 50 to life they spent millions of dollars on this investigation they had him under surveillance in florida found nothing they seized him with all his computers not a trace like i've never had a client in my decade of doing computer law that was so fucking disciplined that they didn't leave some little crumb somewhere on their shit that somebody can find like like but i'm i feel like i'm spitting or pissing in the wind talking with people because they're so little there's zero corroborating evidence that that website dns registration gets all this primacy everyone's like oh my god a layer transaction in 2011 you know he must have operated something for 10 years give him 50 to fucking life what are you guys doing but darknet 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 that's all i have to say that's where the boogeyman lives that's where all your fears live that's where all the witches are the darknet where the hooded hackers are like sorry ranting <laughs> Don't worry, there's a lot of ranting on on this channel. Mike, you want to throw anything in in there? Yeah, for sure. You know, there's also appears to be a profit motive between chain analysis and Yeah, that's what, that's what I was trying to get at. Go ahead. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's been a there's been a couple of prosecutors in this case. One of them went off and became a judge who's been making favorable decisions in favor of Chainalysis. There's another one that now works as a senior legal director at Chainalysis. And it appears that every time Chainalysis gets mentioned in a DOJ press release, uh, trumpeting an arrest of a dark net cyber criminal, Chainalysis will get thanked in the in the press release and then go and get, do series uh, private equity funding, raising their valuation. So when they started on this case, which probably back in around 2015, 2016, when they're just getting started as a company, this is probably one of their oldest cases that they've ever been working on. And uh, yeah, they every time they get mentioned in a DOJ press release, they go and they get another round of private equity funding. Now, they're now worth $8.5 billion. So there's a big profit motive, and the jobs of these people at DOJ are secured for after they leave DOJ. They're going to go work at Chainalysis. They're going to get money from Chainalysis. It is uh, a cesspool. Of- <laughs> well, like I said, it's it's kind of a scary feedback loop that's growing stronger and stronger. And then it also mm-hmm. applies to regu- the regulatory world as well, right? Because they're lobbying and getting things done in that sector as well. That's using correct. Their, their funds, that's right? Correct. And they're benefiting from that, right? So they have every incentive in the world to uh, increase certain regulations, right? Increase the banking laws as they apply to crypto, right? So that it's maybe mm-hmm. so it applies different than to how it traditionally applied to cash. Now there's kind of a, a different way of looking at crypto and they have every incentive to change those regulations mm-hmm. so that you know uh, centralized exchanges are expected to give more oversight, all the KYC AML, right? They want as, these companies want as much KYC AML as possible because that helps their, their algorithm and helps their, their, how it works. Mm-hmm. They want to, you know, basically they want laws to be put in place where these Basically, these companies are responsible for making sure that they don't receive, quote unquote, tainted coins. And then what do you need to do that? Oh, you're going to need a good chain analytics software program uh, to do that. Here, here we are. Uh, we'd like to help you out with that. But I assume that they're, they're also the guys that are helping you know, pass this legislation, right? They're the, they're, they're the lobbyists, I would the assume. Lobbying, yeah. Right. Uh, I, think yeah. I think Jonathan Levin at, um, if I'm, uh, at the chain... Chainalysis is a very good um, networker. I mean, Chainalysis, I think, has been very good at that uh, from the beginning. I do think, like I was saying, this is our dogs. Uh, uh, that, uh, as Michael said, this is one of their first cases. So their market valuation is like nothing sort of at the start of it. I know this isn't the only case that they built their company on. But this is a, a a major one where they. Jonathan uh, Levin was also a big participant in the Mount Gox research after the big hack in 2014. Mm-hmm. And some of the data that has turned up in the discovery in this yeah. is from that that Mt. Gox, uh, that uh, search to see who hacked Mt. Gox and tried to get the money back, which Jonathan Levin played a key a key role in that. And the other CEO of uh, of Chainalysis is Michael Groninger. He's a Danish uh, citizen who created Kraken earlier on. So he created Kraken and then went on to work with uh, Jonathan Levin uh, at Chainalysis. And they don't want us to. They, they're fighting. The, uh, we subpoenaed them. They're fighting the subpoena, and we subpoenaed. They're uh, they primarily use Chainalysis Reactor, and so we're like, okay, show let us show us the source code, right? Like, I want to look at the code. I want to have somebody like decompile the code and look at your algorithms and see what the f is going on, right? Because uh, uh, the cluster attributions, this cluster theory, like you know, everyone's like talking like it's like some perfect thing, but 
the cluster attributions will differ across across different forensic platforms. So you'll see maybe something, as an example, say, oh, this one, this cluster is Bitcoin Fog, but you'll go to another platform and it'll be, you know, whatever, Mt. Cox or, or whatever, or Coinbase. Um, it's, um, there's a lot of guessing in it. And, and again, you have to um, verify it, like with something external, like in this the, case. This, this is one exist. of the major problems with their analysis is that they're not scraping all the data from the black blockchain and using that as an input, they're making guesses with their input data. Yeah. So by by selecting what data you're inputting into the Chainalysis reactor, reactor software, you're actually affecting what the outcome is. Yeah, it's a lot more subjective, I think, than um, people realize. And, and we and have a Dauber hearing lined up on this as well for the summertime. It just got moved to July. You have a so what? This, a Daubert hearing. It's okay. uh, Dobbert's just where you challenge the uh, scientific validity of the evidence and the experts being presented in court. It's uh, it's named after uh, was it I forget the name of the case. Well, no, Dobbert, Dobbert, no, Dobbert, no Fry is a separate case, but uh, yeah. Fry precedes Dobbert. But uh, it's basically where you challenge the scientific validity of the evidence because like nobody's done it. So like, is that where chain analysis will potentially be on trial then? Like we we're saying during this. Yeah, exactly. you know, and, and also it's sort of like I look at the tracing from one aspect and I'm like, OK, well, what have you traced? You've traced legal deposits from Bitcoin Fog to his Kraken account. Um, and it's incomplete. They have, they else, have right? yeah. gone from from out of Bitcoin Fog to his Kraken account. They don't have the input into Bitcoin Fog. They're, and they're saying that, oh, it originates from Bitcoin Fog. But no, you needed to like send it word, from somewhere yeah. else first. So there's a bit of a logic puzzle there as well. Or just like a semantic tennis, you know? They're like, it originates with Bitcoin Fog. You're like, no, it went through Bitcoin Fog. It didn't originate with Bitcoin Fog. And, and you know, because the reason they have to say it originates with Bitcoin Fog is they have this theory that he was getting, you know, you know, Bitcoin uh, fog when it tumbles would charge a, a fee of one to three percent. So they're saying th those deposits are the royalty payments from like, you know, the licensing fees on Bitcoin fog. But that doesn't like add up at all. Right. Because what our client gets makes his money and it's not a lot. It's like one, two million. Right. It's from the appreciation of his Bitcoin. And you can see it like in his deposits, you know, he works a job, you know, odd jobs, internet, he's a computer geek, like trades crypto, all that crap, right? Um, and you can see, what's that? And he accumulates along the way. He's buying. He accumulates, yeah, exactly. he sets up wallets for people. And then so, and then all of a sudden when Bitcoin shoots up, um, he's got all this money and you can see him in the beginning, he's still trading, he's adding, and then he's just living off of it. Like he realizes, oh, I can leave my job, he leaves his job, right? It takes a six month hiatus and then decides, fuck it, you know what I mean? And you can see him living off of it, and he and and he comes to the United States to with his girlfriend to look at like maybe getting a condo or something like that. And that's in 2017. Mind you, they start like this investigation in like 2015. Uh, that's when in 2017 they put him under all the surveillance. And you'd think they would stop after they do all this surveillance and they don't get anything, right? Like I cannot express how much they seized from our client <laughs> at LAX and how there is nothing on it. And um, I was like, yeah, but the DNS registration in 2011. Yeah, but but there's not a shred of evidence that he operated anything. Can you, like if, if, if he did, point it out to me. Point it fucking out to me. And point out like the crime because nobody has yet. 
I've been on this case a year now, and nobody has pointed it out to me. And then another big issue I think you maybe kind of glossed over is just the venue, right? The jurisdiction as oh, to whether the, no, the, the venue is manufactured in D.C. Yeah, totally. The, the government manufactured venue in D.C. by sending a transaction from an office in D.C. through Bitcoin Fog, putting a message that the money they're sending through Bitcoin Fog is to wash the proceeds of selling Molly. Not getting a response back. They sent it to the you know to the administration contact at, at Bitcoin Fog. Didn't get a response, and that's the basis for charging him in DC. Oh wow! So there's, someone, there's, yeah, there's no, there's nothing connecting Roman to any of this. He's never even been to DC until he got held there to appear in trial. In so court. because there wasn't some kind of like automated message or message like you shouldn't you, you know we don't support yeah, illegal. Stop. Yeah, yeah. Like, hey kids, say no to drugs. <laughs> That's crazy. Well, so that's that's how, that's how they're obtaining venue by by they went by going by the U.S. government actually using the system and saying because they're located. So wait, what is the like? What's the legal? And explain that. I don't even get how does that give so, them venue. The United States. This is my favorite like part of the United States Constitution part because I've won on it before. But uh, Article Three of the United States Constitution and the Sixth Amendment require that all federal criminal trials occur in the state and the district where the crime occurred. Right. And so there's a bunch of different circuits of different interpretations of what that means. But generally, the effects of the crime are not sufficient uh, to have the crime occurred there. But, you know, that's a little like, you know, get it. But here, what's the crime? Right. They're, they're charging him with uh, money laundering, conspiracy to commit money laundering, operating a um unlicensed uh, uh, money transmission business in the District of Columbia under D.C. municipal statute, which I think is a nice touch. Uh, and then, you know, violation of what is it? Uh, uh, federal uh, money uh, transfer licensing law. Money transmission. Um, money no transmission. License. What the fuck does that IRS transaction that the tumbling have to do with any of that? Um, what's scary, and this is what should scare everybody listening uh, uh, who is in this space, is that there's nobody on the other end of that transaction and they're using that to just uh charge somebody in dc uh based on just basically their whim no other evidence right that means if they're right on that they can haul anybody in any prosecutor in the united states can haul anybody into their jurisdiction just by doing it, uh, you know, pressing a button, basically. Like you could end up in Nevada, you could end up in Kansas, you could end up in Chicago, you could end and the up. The government in would Indiana. be able to drag defendants into favorable or unfavorable for the defendants' jurisdictions, and that is dangerous, and that is not. It'll destroy your life, man. Just paying for it. It'll destroy your life just trying to pay for it. Like people don't I, I, like people are like, oh, venue is a technical clause in the Constitution. The reason they had is like these guys were all like trial lawyers and. People, revolutionaries would get arrested in Philadelphia and get put on a jury trial in London. How many thousands of dollars does it take just to get there, right? Like, and then you've got this hostile jury. What our guy's lived in Sweden since he was 14. He's never set foot in DC. He's going into the United States to take some flight lessons because he realizes crypto is volatile. You know, he's not like super rich and he wants to get like a day job as like a pilot, right? He's at LAX, so he takes all his computers, like three laptops. He's got uh, four uh, Raspberry Pis, three terabytes of hard drives, like an insane amount of stuff, right? Like you would expect, okay, here's the operator of Bitcoin Farm. We got him. And there must have just been this sinking feeling in their stomach when they got the forensics back and they're like, oh, shit. 
there's nothing on here. Yet they still persisted. And that's because I think the careerism, the money, like uh, this is a really a 10-year investigation. Um, it's been people's like pet project. One guy, this is the one thing I, I just don't know what to do. This case is so crazy, right? So there's this guy named Aaron Bice. And he graduates college and he gets a job for, uh, you know, working as a government subcontractor who minor who uh, gets him a job as a subcontractor. The IRS is a criminal investigator who starts working on this case and he starts working with chain analysis. Right. Then he decides he's going to start his own LLC while he's still working as an IRS criminal investigator on this case under our tax dollars. Right. That company, uh, Exigent LLC, when our client gets arrested, gets top billing in the press release, right? And then Chain Analysis, they're talking. Chain Analysis is interesting, it isn't in the DOJ press release, but they do this Wired article interview saying, see, this proves that this stuff is right. Um, about five months after that press release, two weeks after the press release, Chain Analysis goes and raises like $100 million in the Series E financing round, right? Uh, five months later, they buy Exigent LLC for an undisclosed sum, but like it must have, I'm guessing it's millions of dollars because the revenue stream on government contracts from Exigent right now is uh, about like $10 million. And more. There's, you can't have this with, with forensics, you can't have the profit motive because it leads to junk science and it leads to confirmation bias. It happened with bite marks, it happens with any newly. There's emerging. a great book by uh, Chris Fabricant. He works with the Innocence Project called Junk Science. And they talk about that throughout the whole book. When a new forensic science like fingerprint reading or checking out hair or even DNA yeah. comes on board, it, get, it gets this primacy that it, it doesn't deserve. You know, if you can come in and you qualify as an expert, you have the science behind you and you point the finger at the defendant and say the bite matches. No, it doesn't necessarily. It just might kind of look like it. You know, these these new emergent fields of forensic technologies have a lot of room for error that isn't fully recognized. And like something like 52% of uh, uh, wrongful convictions are based on junk forensic science. Do you love coffee and Monero as much as we do? Consider making gratuitous.org your daily cup. Pay with Monero for premium fresh beans, and if you like what you taste, send a digital cash tip directly to the Guatemalan farmers that made it possible. Proceeds help us grow this channel, Gratuitous, and Monero. This is this is crazy. So, so would you guys say? I, I guess I don't want to jump to it too, but I, but I will. We'll, we'll jump around a little bit. So, would you guys say maybe this is re, uh, maybe a reason why people should use something like Monero over Bitcoin so they don't get caught up in in situations like this, right? Maybe falsely accused of things because every time you transact in Bitcoin, there's a history that that follows you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah, like, what, if you're concerned your, with your privacy, your... yeah, I would, I would, I would say, first of all, don't commit crimes. But like, did you, no, no, you no, know, but not, not even concerned the... with your, obviously concerned with your privacy, but just concerned with getting yeah. falsely accused or yeah. you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. getting caught up in things because you're you're using this ledger that permanently stores your history, and then governments yeah. can use it to construe that into what they want to, to get the, the ring signature techniques that Monero uses are, is really 
on point, I think, by sending the actual recipient and the actual sender signature along with a bunch of decoy signatures that makes it difficult to do these kind of uh, forensic research. And the government currently has bounties for contractors to be able to you know, break the Monero privacy features and they haven't been able to do it yet. I think that yeah. Monero is a great option. Yeah, yeah. So what, what do you think chain, I mean, given what you guys are learning here, I mean, what, what, what would you speculate is chain analysis up to with regards to something like Monero? Because they, they can't trace it. They're trying to. They're trying every day, I bet you. Oh, of course they're they're we, we know they are. We know they are. But I mean, we're, we're, assuming, a lot of money on the table, we're assuming that, uh, yeah, that Monero will, will stay ahead, right? Because the, the, the guys there are just as smart as the guys there. And they kind of, due to the nature of encryption, Monero is, is always going to be ahead, is kind of the theory. But do you think that means they're going to want to potentially, you think, ban something like Monero? Because, because they can't deal with it, they can't trace it. Would that be what they might lean towards, like a chain analytics company? If they're if they're incentivized, if they want to go lobby, uh, you know, they can't. They have they, they don't have a tool to offer for tracing Monero, but it still exists there. Do they then not want it on exchanges? Do you think they don't want it being used in the U.S.? What would you? I'm just I, curious. I, insights I, there, I, Monero community I, hearing about. I agree with that. I think. It's sort of like you go big picture on this. This is just their need to control all sorts of cryptocurrencies or anything that, you know, threatens their control of the financial system. And mind you, I'm a capitalist and I'm saying that, right? Like I'm not some freaking bomb throwing Marxist or whatever. Um, I, I see this, you know, and with DOJ, there seems to be, I mean, they're predisposed to see things in evil terms. So they see, uh, you know, the dark net and everything on it and crypto is like, like everything is like nefarious. And, and, and that's one thing that I think is, you know, tainting this case is this kind of, oh, my God, it's it's crypto. It must be, you know, illegal. I don't like when, when we spoke to Roman about why he first started using Bitcoin fog to secure his privacy. It was because he was worried that people were going to figure out how much money he had in his in his wallets. Because if he transacts with somebody, they can see his well, Bitcoin wallet address. They type it into a, a blockchain uh, search engine and they're able to pop right up exactly how much is in his account. And then if they know where he is, you know, they can go put a gun to his head, force him to transfer that to their account. And that was going on in Europe, but particularly in the Baltics and Eastern Europe, where they had all these crypto conventions and crypto's new. This is going on around like 2011 through 2015, especially in Eastern Europe, where Roman was hanging out. And, you know, that's what he wanted to avoid. He saw this as a tool to an innocent tool to secure his own privacy and interest. He didn't wash any money. He didn't run the thing. Like, except his own. He didn't wash his money. He, did, he just he tumbled his own money for some his own privacy money and now. security reasons. And like now, and imagine like you getting arrested. You get arrested at the airport. You're you're going on you whatever for business or travel. You get arrested, and they're saying all of a sudden you're operating a money laundering operation for ten years based on a, uh, a DNS registration from 2011 from 10 years ago and then it was like how come you don't remember you say you maybe you did it but you don't know you're like what the fuck i can't remember what i did yesterday right and you got some computer guy like like they're they're they, they, they're like we're not even 100 percent sure that he he did register the uh 
Bitcoin file going to come DNS. I, I, I don't think, think he did. It, it, the only attribution is that uh, it had the same IP address that he had been using around the same time. But these allegedly, guys were all using allegedly, allegedly, yeah. allegedly. They were all using VPNs. See. They could have been using the same VPN. Somebody could have been over in his area at his apartment or connected to his Wi-Fi. There's no, there's nothing tying it to him. Yeah, it's like messed up. It's like, uh, like the IP address guessing alone is like okay. Um, and then in the no, Mount IP Gox is not IP, IP is not personally identifiable information for this exact reason. You can't use an IP to say that somebody did something. So you can't use it to identify. Sure. You can't use it to identify anybody. Right, because you don't know who's actually behind it. Right? Exactly. Um, I mean, that was with Ross, right? They really need they need to they needed to have him with the computer open, logged in, and catch him in the act in the physical for them to you know basically. Get them on Apparently, that. their standards have gone down a lot since then. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, it's 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 not gonna take a shot of like that, but it's like there's no corroborating evidence here like that. It's exactly it. Like this stuff, it's a tool, but you the only way you're gonna know if it, to verify the information is from information from an external source. You need empirical verification outside the code, and in Harmon and and Ross's case, all these other cases, you have that. That's not here. That's the I think the unique distinctive feature about this case and where they have a huge, huge problem because they have an innocent man. And, and fundamentally, what you have here is an injustice and a conflict between profit and justice. And they can't let go because of uh, all sorts of reputational concerns, market valuations and stuff like that. But they're fundamentally committing an injustice and they're putting on the mantle as some sort of moral you know, prosecutors who are going to save us from the scourge of, you know, tumbling. Now, you use the word, you know, these things are tools, right? Um, the Bitcoin, but I mean, Bitcoin fog, you know, it was it was a tool that was centralized, right? Somebody somebody was running it. It wasn't decentralized. But now we see, you know, things like Tornado Cash. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, that was recently sanctioned by the U.S. Yeah. government. Tornado Cash is a client of Chainalysis. So not only is Chainalysis going after Bitcoin Fog and some of the mixers, but on the other side, they're representing other mixing services. Yeah, it's like you know, there's a conflict of interest. It's like another one of those neat little things. What do you mean? Wait, what do you mean they uh, explain that? Uh, when we were doing research in the Chainalysis, we found out that Tornado Cash is one of their clients. So they represent uh, interest, business interests adverse to Bitcoin Fog, right? So like like so this is a problem with having a for-profit forensics vendor that markets like to the general market for compliance, right? It's in their other clients' interest to see something like Bitcoin, like they rep they have other Tumblr clients, right? Like it's in their interest to see Bitcoin Fog maybe criminally prosecuted because it's going to benefit the market interests of another. Uh, I'm not saying this happened, but this is the theoretical problem, right? of a conflict of interest and, and and you don't have that kind of business conflict of interest when this is just the government cyber lab like fbi cyber which is like but you have oh wait tor you're breaking oh, we, up we lost we lost it tor tor we, we we lost your we lost your sound we lost your we lost your sound 
Mike, why, why, why he tries to get that back? Hopefully, he will. Um, wait, so, so I mean, tor- tornado cash was, you know, it's it's what was used in Ethereum. Uh, it's, it's you know, decentralized. It's a piece of mm-hmm. software that was created to essentially, uh, you know, hide the history of of Ethereum transactions. Mm-hmm. What you're saying? What well, was Jane Alice's uh, connection to that? I'm 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 still blurry on. on so. All, all we know is that Chainalysis has listed Tornado Cash as one of its clients in in public papers that it published at some point in time in the last couple of years. Okay. Uh, I don't know what they're doing for Tornado Cash, but I'm assuming that it's some kind of lobbying. Uh, I, all I know is that it, they represent Tornado Cash, and Tornado Cash is a competitor to Bitcoin Fog. So we do see the conflict of interest between the Chainalysis has positioned itself in. Where it's representing the government and supposedly trying to be impartial and accurate on the one hand, but then have all these private business incentives on the other hand. And this is where where profit meets justice. And I don't think the two should be as interlinked as they are. Now, but, but Tornado Cash was sanctioned by, by the U.S. government. It's basically been, you know. Uh, yeah. It also, the, the, the sanctions coincide with Ethereum uh, adopting stealth addresses. If you're mm-hmm. familiar with that, it looks like uh, Vitalik Buterin is going to, he's attempting to address the same issue that all these mixing services and, and, and privacy coins have been trying to address as well. And that's that. People don't want other people to see how much money's in their account, where it's located. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you, Monero actually has stealth addresses. It was one of the first to mm-hmm. implement. Um, it's one of the, the technologies. I'm a big can- fan of Monero. I love Monero. <laughs> um, so let me let me get your kind of your your opinion there. Just back with like the the concept of potentially banning a Monero. I'm just curious your legal opinions there from like a constitutional standpoint. What would your arguments be as to whether or not uh, something like Monero, an open source piece of software that's used for communicating value, there's nobody that owns it. There's no, uh, you know, creator to be named. It was anonymously started. Um, and it's, it's, it's run by you know, volunteers around the world that are that are running nodes. You don't know who they are. Um, do you think on a, there is any constitutional basis to even potentially ban something like Monero? Like, what would be what would be the arguments? Just boy, that's like a law school exam. Yeah. <laughs> It's like a fascinating question. Yeah, 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 I wish you would have had time to prepare for it. But something I'm just curious off the bat, and you know, maybe you can think about it more. But there's, an, I think they there'd be a, there'd be a huge constitutional fight over that, mm-hmm. um, because in you got you'll probably have one side saying this is a taking. Um, you'll have the government saying it's well within our regulatory powers. You, you, you know, the Federal Reserve is kind of like the fourth branch of government as there is, it's like this quasi, and I'm not being conspiracy, there's, it's just like, it's so powerful. Um, it would be a really interesting constitutional battle that I bet would go all the way to Supreme Court. I mean, you've got the argument that code is speech, with yeah. just first amendment issues here. You've got fifth amendment, I think, well, liberty, due process interest, taking interests. Um, I, I think, I mean, I would love to work on that case if it came up. I think it'd be fascinating. <laughs> It would be fascinating. Hopefully, we won't be contacting you for that anytime soon. But uh, no, right, right. I mean, yeah, 
Well, you got to start lobbying against it now before they get, you know, into the halls of Congress to get their crazy ideas, right? Um, yeah, I, I, th- I told you before, I think before this guy ran for Congress in 2020 in New York, and that was the primary reason I did it, because I s- kind of saw the, the writing on the wall where things were heading. And I felt like nobody to date had really made these, you know, constitutional arguments as to why something like Monero, a free speech protocol for transacting value, aligns with American values. I mean, the only arguments you've ever heard on the floor of Congress with regards to things like Bitcoin, ultimately, when really, really pushed up against the wall is legislators or those that were, you know, um, you know, uh, being asked questions by legislators would would say the experts would say, well, don't worry, congressman or congresswoman. Actually, Bitcoin is more traceable than anything we've ever worked with in the past in terms of, you know, trying to track and trace U.S. dollars. So if anything, it will make uh, you know finding criminals and tracking them down easier, but you never heard then the arguments as to why. All right, well, uh, if it wasn't easy to track and trace, would it still be something that's ethically good and you know that aligns with American ideals and the Constitution? I've, I've yet to kind of really hear anybody have the balls to to go out and, and make that argument on and you know on a, on a legal basis. Anonymity is fundamental to the American existence and the American revolution. And I mean, if you read the Federalist Papers, which are written I mean, by John uh, Madison. Madison and Hamilton yep. and uh, Jay, um, they're all written uh, with anonymous Roman pseudonyms, right? Mm-hmm. Like Putinists, right? Like, and that's how uh, the political foundation of our country emerges is these debates, public debates between anonymous uh, uh, individuals and, and, you know, there's, I mean, isn't there a right to privacy with our currency too? Right. Um, and there's a whole host of issues and, and this stuff is not going away. That's the other thing. I, I think there, there's a certain desperation in their prosecutions. I think that they're panicking at the fact that ultimately you're not going to be able to control it. Like they're all gleeful and exulting over the traceability of Bitcoin. But yeah, you know, uh, Satoshi said knew it was traceable. And if you read Sir Michael John's paper, she points out that she got her idea for you know pure chance and all this from from you know reading the original paper on it. So this is like nothing new. But the technology is always going to be there, and it's way more efficient than anything I've ever ever dealt with. That's how I got into crypto. Someone was like, Same here. Yeah, do you do you take Bitcoin? I was like, what is it? They're like, it's money. And we were so broke. I was like, yeah, sure. And it's been the most efficient thing. I don't I'm like I never got into the hype. It's just like it's faster to fastest way to transfer stuff internationally. Right. You don't have to deal, you don't have to deal with banks. You press yeah. a button and it goes. Yeah, you, don't, you don't have trolls taking fees over the borders. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so know. so what would what would then be the advice maybe to the Monero community that, you know, is worried that the strong arm of the government may, you know, may come down. Is there things to to do in anticipation other than being out here and saying these things all the time, uh, you know, without having a, a rep in Congress yet that's really willing to go out there and make these arguments? What would you what would you suggest Try, trying to lobby or yeah, lobby, raise public awareness and demystify this, this, this cryptocurrency? There's this mystique to it for people who don't understand it, that um, it's it's oddly superstitious and gets exploited by DOJ 
which is sort of the fear of the unknown or that, um, you know, the hooded hacker. I don't know what, but like demystifying it and just being like, this is just a sophisticated form of currency and we're all entitled to privacy. Just because I use encryption or I want to protect my bank accounts doesn't mean I'm some sort of drug criminal and or I'm a tax evader or anything. And you, you know, the the criminal law still requires criminal intent, right? Like, and yeah, the technology changes, but in a certain sense, the crime and the criminal intent is still the same. And like, um, just educate people. Awesome. Mike, any uh, anything you want to throw in there? Yeah, I think lobbying would do a good option as well. We were down in, um, in D.C. on the weekend. We went and talked with uh, Senator Gillibrand's office. They expressed a lot of interest in trying to engage with the hacker community. They want to build a hacking school. They want to have more high-level computer hackers working for the federal government. They're asking us where they all are, and we're telling them they're all sitting in federal prisons. You arrested them. <laughs> You know, they're, they're, there's such a disconnect between the reality and what they want it to the reality to be as well. Uh, this school that they were talking about building, of course, I thought it was going to be an online school. You're trying to attract computer scientists. But no, they wanted to have a physical, you know, physical location for the school, presumably to, you know, bring jobs into the community and stuff like this. But that is just such a disconnect. No one's going to want to go to a school, physical school to learn how to work better and hacking on the computer like the, the the disconnect between the politics and the nature of the computer space is is really interesting but it's something that if we make them aware if we make the leaders people in, in positions of power aware of the opportunities that can come with this decentralization of power and the and decentralization and money as well it is there's a lot of progress that can be made there yeah, I mean, I was, I was even talking to somebody today on on Twitter, and you know, a, a lot of people remain anonymous in Monero, and I completely respect that, and I, I think it's very important. It's helped. It's one of the things that's going to, uh, you know, ultimately help protect Monero, right? Especially the devs, right? The, most mm -hmm. of them are anonymous, and that's very important. They can't be easily uh, co opted, right, or, or taken over by like by by the government or the state. Um, but like regular people like me, you know, some of, some of us are out there, right? I'm using Monero. I'm loud and proud about it. What would be, you know, am I an idiot for doing that? I think, you know, I'm a liberty loving individual, so, so I don't care. But, you know, I think in, in most people's gut, they're a little reluctant to even be out there and talking about it, um, even compared to, to, to Bitcoin, right? Because it, it is private by default uh and they're just concerned that they you know may be accused or maybe assume that they're using this tool for for wrongdoing what kind of what would be your your advice doesn't have to be legal advice <laughs> well first i think your concern is justified in the sense that the government always loves to come for people's privacy right i mean that's something that's going on with the abortion debate right now mm -hmm. that's with, you know, all sorts of ways, and, and especially with the rise of social media companies. So, I mean, I wish I could say if you keep your nose clean and you don't commit any crimes, you're going to be okay. But after, you know, 10 years as a federal criminal defense lawyer, I can't say that um, because they do target people who make noise and they do try to chill the speech in the community um, and they do look for petty themes to prosecute uh, people criminally for that they don't like politically. And that's not something I would have said 10, 10 years ago. 
uh, I'm saying that from actually seeing that with my own eyes. And when people want to you know, tell me what the FBI is like, excuse me, gentlemen, I say, well, what do you know about the FBI? I've been dealing with them for 10 years. And they say, well, I, I watch them on TV. Okay, the FBI you see on TV is not like the FBI in the real fucking world. And DOJ is nothing like you think it is. And I, I know like a lot of the, the, the shocking part about how what it is in, in real life is just the banality of the evil that exists there. I don't know I think that evil, but it's like there's an institutional nature to what's going yeah. on that allows uh, people to have a lack of accountability. And when you combine that with a system where 90% of the cases go to the plea, 8% get dismissed, and the 2% that go to trial, only 1% result in acquittal, you've got a really messed up system. And you've got people who think that the case law that they're seeing on Google Scholar and what they're seeing learning at law school matters. Well, 99%, of the, 98% of the time, what's happening doesn't involve any case law at all, right? So what is actually going on in that system? And how much do you really know about it if you're just depending on, you know, your text searches on Google or Google Scholar or what you saw in some case book, right? It's a completely different machine. And what you're seeing with Roman's case is you're seeing that machine in action. And I think some ugly facets of it have come to the surface. And I think it's an extremely dangerous case for anybody in the crypto space because their theory of liability here is so broad that they can, if it's accurate, they can snatch up anybody they want on, on you know, a manufactured, manufactured transaction that you don't even have to be present for. That's what Roman had. There's no evidence that Roman even had saw anything, had anything to do with that, you, you know, quote unquote sting they did in DC, nothing. And look what happened there, like from a, a criminal law theory point, there's no mens rea, right? It's like you have to have criminal intent, right? Where's the mental intent of the criminal defendant in that, and quote-unquote entrapment action. At first, I was going to mount an entrapment defense, and then I realized, oh, my God, there's no defendant here. But then that looks like a strict liability crime because they've el eliminated the mental intent of the defendant. And that's scary as fuck, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that goes against centuries of our common law tradition, right? And, like, you remove intent, from criminal law, the government's just going to be able to just, you know, grab anybody they want, you know? Um, yeah. That, that's what was crazy with tornado cash. Cause they, they sanctioned use of the tool. So anybody that was using it for any reason, it, it didn't matter what the mens rea was. Uh, it was strict live. It became strict liability because of, because of sanctions. That disconnect is a threat to everybody's liberty. Yeah. I, I think, and that's actually like another, that's another, this case is so fascinating. And these cases are so fascinating because, the stuff that's going on, the law is changing. And they're moving there, I think, really to this sort of like strict liability theory of criminal law that's is like, it's like lurking in there. And that, you know, I feel like a nerd kind of for saying that because most people are like, well, what are you talking about? But like, that's scary as fuck if for, for all of us, right? If that's yeah. accurate, mm -hmm. right? An accurate depiction of what's going on, everyone should be concerned there. If, if what, what's your constitutional argument for... Uh, for DC not to be able to be, have proper venue for any criminal case. I like that one. This <laughs> upset the DOJ. It was like an <laughs> argument that nobody can answer that we've done no research on. Oh, we've done, I mean, I know the constitution, but like, like, I keep on asking the question, well, if the United States constitution requires all federal criminal trials to be in the state and the district where the crime occurred, 
and the District of Columbia is not a state, how is any federal criminal jury trial constitutional in D.C.? Now, I expected the first time I answered that, asked that question, people to be like, oh, yeah, well, Tori, you know about this case. You know what I get every freaking time? Well, uh, I don't know, and, 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 and everyone's running off, and nobody can tell me why. And then I, so we put it in our motion to dismiss, uh, which the court still hasn't decided. But I put it in as like a paragraph. I was like, okay, let's see, let's see what they got. It's like ten page response, like nothing on, like totally on point. And I can see their panic and their fear, thinking like, oh my God, there goes all our January six prosecutions or anything, or like, are they going to get the votes on the Supreme Court? I w- we were totally surprised by that reaction, and are thankful for them for doing all that research for us. And we will continue to make that argument up the ladder as well. Because if you're going to put an innocent man in jail for 50 years to life, we're going to try to destroy criminal jurisdiction for all federal trials in D.C. And we're going to make you justify the constitutional basis for it. Because the Constitution is not an a la carte document. You just don't get to pick which parts of it you want to enforce, and which is cool. Which is, I think, what is kind of happening here. Because they've gotten soft with the plea process. Because all they do is please. And now they've got somebody calling bullshit on them. And they're all scrambling and huffing and puffing. They still can't point to a single, a single crime or a single piece of evidence that our client ever operated Bitcoin fraud. And I invite anybody listening or watching this to point me to any evidence that our client operated Bitcoin fraud. I dare you. If if things you know if things go go your way, uh, what do you potentially see as the precedent that could be set here with regards to chain analysis and how it's used in a court of law? Fantastic think, question. That's a great question. Like I think, first of all, that uh, uh, what I hope is that there'll be a precedent that if you're going to use proprietary computer software as a form of forensics to accuse a criminal defendant. You have to produce it to the defense for analysis, and you don't get to hide it. And in this case, we subpoenaed it, and they're trying to hide it, right? If you're going to make money off of a criminal investigation, you know, you need to disclose that money, those amounts, and the people involved in it need to uh, be, you know, we have a right to call them to the stand. They're refusing to uh, put the key players and chain analysis on the stand, we've subpoenaed them and they're fighting the subpoena, right? You wanna make all that money. Like nobody forced chain analysis to go into the law enforcement market. That was a voluntary choice. And when they went in that market, they should have expected, they should have expected that defense lawyers would subpoena them and say, we wanna see your software. They weren't forced into this. And now they're all like, oh no, it's proprietary. It's proprietary. Well, I mean, to me, like, again, it looks like you're hiding something. How can I trust you? Because it looks like you made a lot of money off this case. And when this case started, your company had a market valuation of zero. And right now it has $8.6 billion. And you built it on all these relationships in DNJ. You're hiring prosecutors off of our case. You're buying private companies started by investigators at the IRS on our case during the pendency of this case uh, that were promoted by the press release in this case. You're spending millions of dollars on them, right? And then they're going and then they're going and writing a book. About yeah, the development. There's a book by Andy Greenberg called Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency. And it follows the development and growth of Chainalysis, as well as the two key agents, the arresting officers who arrested Roman Sterlingov at LAX. And the book has already been optioned for a Hollywood docudrama. 
that's conversations about uh, the arrest of our client that we haven't seen and that I didn't know about. We didn't know, really know about until. It was uh, not included in discovery, was never turned over to us. The agent names, like every freaking prosecutor in the case is in the index, right? And um, it's, you know, it, 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 it's careerism. Like one problem with DOJ, and it's not just on this case, is that like they keep statistics on convictions like batting averages, right? Except the problem is criminal justice is not a sport, okay? Like justice has to do with whether or not someone it's is the saddest thing. Or guilty. And if they are guilty, what an appropriate punishment is, is that our society can agree on, right? It's not racking up as many convictions as you can. But that's the mentality. And in this case, I've even seen a communication where they're like, are we getting credit for it? Are we going to get credit for it? Whoa, man. Hey, you know, like, like you, you, your job as a prosecutor is not to rack up convictions. Right. right? It's, it's to, to, it's justice. Right. And it's li- lives that, that that's at stake and it's liberty, the future of liberty. Right. Because every time they, they, they ratchet it up and create this, this precedent, uh, it takes away people's liberty. Right. Yeah. And that's why we've got the Bill of Rights. Right. And the Bill of Rights is the philosophy of the Bill of Rights is not trust the government. You know, just read it. And everybody, if you if you question me on that point, I don't think anybody will just read them. I mean, they're all, you know, affirmative rights against government encroachment. Because they knew what this was like. This is nothing new, right? What is new is the technology, and they're using it because nobody knows it, and everyone's afraid to admit that they don't understand it, right? I don't think anybody really totally understands this crap, right? And so people get they don't, they don't want to be insecure, so they want to they join the bandwagon. It's like the emperor's new clothes. Now, of course, this chain analysis stuff is great. Well, you know, they arrested that person over there, and that person over there, and they caught that child predator over there. But like, we're um, also trying to use this case to prove their appeal chain methodologies. Uh, in August, well after Roman was arrested, there was a presentation at the Usenix Security Symposium in Boston uh, by some academic researchers from Europe, including Sarah Mikulchan, as well as some of her students who also are contractors for Chainalysis, analysis in, in which they, they published a paper with details in the arrest, again, that, we're not, that we didn't even know about. And then they presented them to uh, a big symposium in Boston publicly. During the pen- there's like some ethical issues there, right? Like with this is there's a pending federal criminal trial. One of the investigators in that pending federal this is the law school exam version. One of those investigators in that federal criminal trial publicly publishes a white paper using evidence from the case. And naming the defendant in that case, and you know, evidence, evidence that's subject to a protective order. Yeah, at least, yeah, at least on our end. And like, uh, um, and like, what are they doing? What they're trying to do is they panicked when we came in and said, "We think this is junk science. You need to show it to us, right?" And you don't have any peer-reviewed white papers or anything that establishes the accuracy of this. And we said, "If you do, give them to us." Like we, I started banging. We started banging the table real early, right? Like. Show us the scientific evidence. They don't have it. This that white paper is an attempt to validate their process, but it it's it's kind of a lot. I think it's a little bit of a mess, but we'll get into that in court. Um, but you know, that, that, that will be examined in court, right? In this in this pretrial you're talking about, right? I hope so. Yeah, the Daubert, the the methodologies and what are getting challenged here, and 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 sort of the. You know, the buzzword in this space is heuristics, which is right. just the old Greek word for fucking guessing. Probably. Right? 
educated guess, right? But for your logic geeks, if this is an induct, prob probabilistic inductive methodology, it's not a deductive uh, system. And that's how you uh, catch innocent people with it. Right. Because you, you ignore the things that contradict your guess, classic confirmation bias. Because you're talking to a reporter, you got Hollywood in your eyes, you're thinking about that million dollar job of chain analysis that you may even just get hired right off of this case for, right? Um, or I got to sell my company, right? So, you know, and I'm, I got, you're going to have a multi million dollar revenue stream, and I'm not just going to be stuck as some sort of IRS criminal investigator for the rest of my life. As a matter of fact, I didn't spend that much time at all at the IRS as a CIA because I started my company as soon as I got in. I built it on this case, and I sold it five months after the press release after we arrested that criminal, right? which was proof of my concept for my company that I sold for millions of dollars that then went to go fundraise $100 million two weeks after that press release as well. But it's all cool, man. None of that affects the forensics at all. Scary. Scary yeah, stuff. Man. Scary, scary. Guys, this is great. Uh, you think I might see you down at Monerotopia? I know. I know you mentioned you might you might be interested in. We'd love to come. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to have you guys down there. That'd be fantastic. That'd be fun. Is there is there any info? We'll we'll, we'll uh, conclude this part of the show. Is there any information you guys want to throw out there? Links, um, info you want to get out? Yeah, I put a link in the chat here. Can you can you post it? Is that how it works? In, in the Twitter chat? No, I put it here in the private in the private chat on uh, Steam. Twitter chat. That's just oh, for we, we can do it in the Twitter chat once we move over there. You can put, post the link over there. But but go ahead. What is that? Oh yeah, no, it's a link to our, our matter highlight on on our firm website for USB Serlingov, and there's an option there to donate to Roman's defense because it looks like all his money. They seize all his money, and we're we're, we're doing our best with limited resources yeah. on this. Yeah, one. we're like no, no, man, <laughs> like the old days on this one. Um, we will uh, we'll we'll put that link in the show notes. Awesome. And when we move over to the Twitter space, you can try to uh, put it in the comments, and I can put it in the uh, the nest so people can see it. Cool. We can also send a. I'll send you a link right now to. Uh, there's a Wired article featuring Roman's case, mm -hmm. and it, it's uh, written by Andy Greenberg, actually the same guy who wrote the book about chain analysis. So here we go. Bitcoin kind of fog case could put cryptocurrency and tracing on trial. It's a good book, actually. Very good book. It is a uh, great, really good book. Monero community read it because it tells the story of how they developed the traceability block, alleged traceability blockchain through all these different forensic methods and heuristics that they use. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm definitely gonna check out that book, and then I'm gonna try to get him on the show. I'd love to go further down this rabbit hole. Uh, I put a link to the Amazon link for the book here for you as well. So there's three links that I put down. We'll put that in all that in the show notes. Uh, Tor, how about you? Anything? Any any last words? Things you want to get out there? I just um, want to thank everybody for listening and watching, and uh, just you know, urge again to, to educate those around you. It doesn't have to be like any kind of big event or anything. Just when you talk about this kind of stuff in crypto, just to normalize it, I feel like, and that's going to take a little bit of time, but just, you know, educate people and, and demystify it. Because I feel like the biggest thing that we're up against is, is sort of like the insecurity and ignorance and the fear um, on the you know, sort of exotic technology. So, you know, we need all the help we can get. And thank you for listening. Yeah, yeah, of course. You came to the, came to the right place. Uh, our interests align for sure. Le 
Freedom Fighters. Freedom Fighters. Um, so if, you, if, you, if you guys have a moment, we'd love to jump. We could jump into the Twitter chat. There are a few people there. We'll see if anybody's got a question. If not, we'll, we'll wrap it up. But I will see you guys over there. Just go over to the Twitter. You should already be in the... And then, do we just leave the studio here? Yeah, yeah. Just we'll, we'll shut this off and just go into the spaces. Thank see, you. Fantastic. Thank you. Cheers. Thank, yep. you. Thank you. Bye. Hi, Monero Land. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to our show on YouTube, Odyssey, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Go to Live for a full list of places where you can watch and listen. If you want to interact with us, guests, or other podcast listeners, you can follow us on Twitter. Monero Talk is also made possible from contributions by viewers and listeners like you. And supporting us is easier than ever by typing in MoneroTalk.crypto in your Monero.com or CakeWallet send address field to send us a tip. Once again, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to being back next week.